This episode contains graphic descriptions of crime scenes, which may be disturbing to some listeners. Today we're bringing you the story of Wayne Reifendeifer and Marty Shook, two men murdered and mutilated in similar grisly fashion about one year apart on opposite ends of the country. This is APB Cold Case. Here's your host, former police chief Mark Spahn. At 8.15 a.m. on August 19, 1981, a Bureau of Forestry employee discovers a dead body in a remote wooded area on Gottschall Road near Ravensburg State Park in Pennsylvania. He immediately calls authorities. At the scene, investigators find a deceased male. The body is completely naked, no ID, no belongings, and shockingly, his genitals have been removed. Corporal Chad Kramer is with the Pennsylvania State Police. He's been working on this case. He describes the area where the body was found. Basically, it's a gravel road. Uh, it kind of leads up a ravine. There's state forest on both sides of the road, and there's a small stream that runs down the ravine alongside the road. At any time of night, there probably wouldn't be any traffic at all, um, just because the nature runs into state game lands, so there wouldn't be any reason for people to travel it. Now, I'm going to give you some perspective on the body's location, and you can see a map in our show notes. The body was found about six miles off of Interstate 80 and about 15 miles south of Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania. The small community of Jersey Shore is located about 15 miles east of Lock Haven and about 15 miles west of Williamsport, Pennsylvania. These locations will come into play later. A thorough search of the area is conducted, and no significant blood is found at the scene leading police to believe that the man was killed elsewhere and dumped in this desolate stretch of forest. The body is removed to the coroner's office. When the autopsy results come back, it's revealed that the victim was probably in his late 20s to early 30s and that he'd been killed execution style with a single bullet to the head. There were no visible defensive wounds. His genitals had been severed, which occurred post-mortem, and they were missing from the scene. In order to find out who murdered this man, investigators needed to know his identity. They started by talking to people around town who may have seen the victim in the previous days. Here's Corporal Chad Kramer. Our troopers responded. They began conducting interviews. They tracked down several people in Lock Haven area that had seen him within the area, hitchhiking, walking along the road. They proceeded to go to local truck stops. They did find several other people that had seen him. Nobody knew his name or anything. They just knew who he was based off of, like, the, they had pictures of him and his tattoos. The 30-year-old man had distinctive crossed trident tattoos on both forearms. At first, he was identified through a fingerprint database search. That identification was confirmed by a family member. The victim's name was Wayne Reifendeifer. We spoke with Donna Engwer, who was Wayne Reifendeifer's sister. She shared some family history, as well as her fondest memories of her older brother. So Harold and Lusset Reifendeifer had eight children. Wayne was the second child born in 1951, and I was the third child born in 1953. We were both born in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. When I was six months old, we moved to the projects to a place called Marina Village in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Harold was a security guard and Lusset did not work. Living in the small apartment we had was tough and crowded, but Wayne and I being so close in age made the best of it and were outside from sunup to sundown. Once in a while, Wayne and I would uh, attend a church called the uh, Beacon Light Mission. 
The one time uh, we went to church, my mother gave us a nickel to put in the plate. Wayne and I were walking to the church and we walked by this bakery and in the window were these huge cinnamon pastries with raisins and the price on them was a nickel. We decided to buy that pastry and split it and it was the best tasting pastry we ever had. Unfortunately, when I was around 11 years old, Harold and Mussed got a divorce. I went with my mother and she took my brother at the time. He was more, he was around a year old. We moved away to Massachusetts with my stepfather and I did not see Wayne again until I was around 13. They had moved into a house by then and we stopped by there to see my siblings for a short visit. I never saw Wayne again after that until I was 17 and about to graduate. He stopped at our house in Wilkes-Barre. He stayed for a short time to visit as he was hitchhiking to other places. That was the last time I saw him. Investigators now know the identity of their victim. It's time to find the killer. But here's where the case takes a turn. About 10 months after Wayne's murder and almost 2,000 miles away, the body of 22-year-old Marty Shook is found by a fisherman in Daniels Canyon, Utah. He'd been dumped in some trees about 30 feet from US-40. Now, like Wayne, he'd been killed by a gunshot to the head. He was naked except for his socks. And again, like Wayne, he'd been castrated and his genitals were missing from the scene. So now, police in two different states are simultaneously working on these two separate homicides. When they submitted their case profiles through the FBI's VICAP, that's the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, they learn about the similar MOs, and when the ballistics are compared from each victim, they get a match. The murder of Marty Shook in Utah and the murder of Wayne Reifendeifer in Pennsylvania were connected. Investigations are moving forward in both cases, and the agencies are sharing information. You'll hear more about Marty Shook a little later, but for now, we'll focus on the Pennsylvania State Police investigation of the events leading up to the murder of Wayne Reifendeifer. Corporal Chad Kramer describes a party on about August 15th or 16th, 1981, one of the places where Wayne was last seen. It was the weekend before his murder. There's multiple reports and um, documents with witnesses that uh, it, it appears to me that he attended a party in the days before his death. It's kind of contradicting as far as whether that occurred in Rocktown, close to where his body was found, or like Coming Creek Road in Williamsport. It's a party. It's described as having several different, I guess you could say, classes of people at this party. So it seems like kind of everybody congregated and the report makes it sound like it was at a residence, but it doesn't say exactly where it was. I got the impression that it, it was kind of like an invite anybody party. But there's one person that has I know of that has said that they, they're pretty sure that he was at a party in Rocktown, that he looked familiar. And then there's but they had listed names of people that were at that party. And the one person was interviewed and said that that party actually occurred in uh, like Humming Creek Road in Williamsport. So, due to the conflicting witness statements, there were two possible locations for the party. Rocktown, Pennsylvania is a small town on Route 880, between Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania, and Interstate 80. If that's where the party was when Wayne was last seen on August 15th or 16th in 81, it's only a couple miles from where his body was found a few days later on August 19th. The other possible location of the party is Lycoming Creek Road in Williamsport, several miles from Rocktown. And that's interesting because there was another sighting of Wayne on that same road. Again, here's Corporal Chad Kramer of the Pennsylvania State Police. 
there is a, a pastor for a church on Old Lake Cumming Creek Road in Williamsport. He came forward, gave a statement that an individual matching Wayne's description was on Lake Cumming Creek Road in the days before his death. And then he was actually able to positively identify him later on. So at, at some point, Wayne was on Lake Cumming Creek Road. So leads me more into the belief that it, it may have occurred in Williamsport, but I, I don't know for sure. In the beginning, I mentioned that the various locations would come into play later in this story. Well, if you look at the map in the show notes, you'll see that the distance between Rocktown and Williamsport is about 25 miles. It's possible that Wayne was at both locations in the days prior to his death. Corporal Kramer told me that he believes that Wayne, who was 30 years old at the time, would have stood out at a party, and he hopes that maybe someone is out there who still remembers him and could provide police with information. I want to introduce you to Todd Park, who's a retired sergeant from the Unified Police Department in Salt Lake City, Utah. He worked cold cases for 19 years before retiring, but his intimate knowledge of homicide investigations and his specific knowledge of the murders of Marty Shook and Wayne Reifendeifer make him indispensable in this investigation, so the Wasatch County Sheriff's Office has retained him for their case. Even though Sergeant Park's case is the Marty Shook homicide, he believes it's all about the timeline. So he begins any conversation about the case analysis with the murder of Wayne Reifendeifer since it occurred first. I spoke with Sergeant Park about Wayne Reifendeifer's movements around Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, shortly before his murder in 1981. On the 15th of August, Wayne is, he, he's seen several times around town on the 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th. And although nobody knows his name, several people describe him as having a green backpack. Some of them describe him having a green army type coat. Uh, several of them describe him as very dirty, as having uh, chipped teeth. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that we're talking about Wayne with a lot of the people that sees him around town. And he's kind of hanging around in an, in a, an area off of Highway 220 Highway 220 is kind of the main thoroughfare that goes past Lock Haven. And I think on both ends, you can hook up with Interstate 80 from uh, Highway 220. He's seen several times hanging out by a guardrail at the off-ramp that goes into the uh, into Lock Haven. Uh, he's seen around town by, like by Mr. Donut, and, and he's seen sleeping underneath a truck at a distributorship. So as we've heard from investigators, Wayne Reifendeifer is seen multiple times and by various people in and around Lockhaven on the days leading up to his death. I spoke with Todd Park about a possible theory for the motivation of the killer to better understand how and why these heinous crimes were committed. With any crime that involves sexual mutilation, one of the natural questions is about a possible victim-offender motivation that involves homosexuality. Here's Todd Park talking about our victims. I'm under the opinion that neither one of them were homosexual, and that could have very well been the precipitous of why they were killed. In addition to theories about the motive of an offender, I spoke with Sergeant Park about the chronology of the crime and he spent a lot of time developing the timeline surrounding both murders. And here's where Sergeant Park's timeline causes him to believe he knows who the suspect is. Let's recap. From August 15th to 18th, 1981, 
Many people see Wayne Reifendeifer around Lockhaven, Pennsylvania. His body's found on August 19th, about 35 miles from Lockhaven, and remains a John Doe until a fingerprint check identifies him on August 27th. In fact, it's around 4 p.m. when they get the call about the identification. But they didn't immediately release that information publicly. First, they needed to locate and notify Wayne's family. They arranged a phone call at about 10 p.m. with one of Wayne's relatives. And here's where something strange happens. At about the same time they're speaking with Wayne's family, a call comes in to Pennsylvania State Troopers. At 10 o'clock, a telephone call comes in from an anonymous caller. He says that he's calling from the Jersey Turnpike, that he's a truck driver, that he picked up Wayne, and he, and he gave the troopers the name, Wayne Reifendeifer, picked him up just at the intersection of Highway 81 and Interstate 80. They drove to a truck stop not too far away, pulled around in the sleeper for a while, drove to another truck stop just outside of Lock Haven, and they both go into the truck stop. Wayne goes into the bathroom, comes out with another guy, and tells his truck driver, hey, I'm going to go with this guy. He's going to pay me a lot of money, but I'll come back either later tonight or tomorrow and keep riding with you. And the truck driver tells Wayne, I'm leaving at noon tomorrow. If you're going to go with me, you need to be back here by noon. Police are suspicious about the allegations made by the anonymous caller. The timing of the events described by the caller don't match up with what police know, because people were still seeing Wayne in the area after the time when the caller said he'd picked Wayne up. Here's Pennsylvania State Police Corporal Chad Kramer. I mean, it proves he definitely had contact with him at some point. It's suspicious in the sense that he wouldn't give his name or anything, hasn't called back, claimed to have his belongings, but kept them or disposed of them in some manner, but never, never made any effort to return them to us. The anonymous caller knew the name of the murder victim before it had been publicly released, and even before it had been released to the family. And it seems highly doubtful that the caller claimed to have been with Wayne Reifendeifer in the days leading up to his murder. And the detailed description of the truck that Wayne Reifendeifer supposedly left in with another man? Sergeant Park believes that it was a diversion. He believes this is their guy. He had Wayne's social security number. He said he had a notebook of Wayne's. And that's how he knew the name. He had a contact information for the father. Um, so there's no doubt in my mind that this truck driver knew Wayne somehow. Now, remember, that this is on the 15th of August that he says he picks him up. Well, we have people for the next four days seeing Wayne around town. So as this anonymous phone call is, is coming in, some of the other troopers are trying to do a trap and trace or whatever it was called back then. They contact Bell Telephone Company and they're trying to pinpoint where this telephone call is coming in. Again, the anonymous caller says that he's on the Jersey Turnpike. Turns out that they can pinpoint it to a junction that it comes back to 31 miles away from Lock Haven. So my thoughts are this is the killer and he lives in Williamsport, which is 31 miles away. He's been seeing the news as they're trying to identify him. They're just giving a shot probably from 
the head up to the news saying, hey, we're trying to identify this this John Doe. And so he's seeing all this and he, he knows that he can mess with the police. I have limited knowledge of, of the psychological aspect of, of some of these sexual type killers. But from my understanding, there's a type of a killer called anger excitation. And it's somebody like this will drive a thousand miles to find their victim or to hunt for a victim. They will do stuff like this. They will make phone calls into the police because as long as they're getting gratification from the homicide, the homicide is still real to them and they're still getting something from that. And it could go on for a year. It could go on for 10 minutes. I mean, you don't know how long, but but the, the common saying is the murder isn't over until they say it's over, which means, okay, they're not getting gratification anymore. Now I got to go find another victim. The severed body parts, clothing, and other belongings of the murder victims have never been located. But here's where the investigation takes another strange turn. In 1990, there was a report from California about a man who had a penis in a jar of formaldehyde. Police investigated, and the man did actually have a severed penis in a jar. The formaldehyde had apparently destroyed any chance at a DNA comparison. That suspect, a high school teacher, was charged with murder based upon the discovery of human genitals in his home, along with a charge for the unrelated sexual molestation of a 17-year-old boy who had been hitchhiking near Las Vegas. The teacher reportedly picked up the youth on his way to a teacher's conference in Minnesota and received permission from the boy's parents for the teen to stay with him. We don't have a lot of details on the reason why a charge of murder was brought for just the possession of the genitals, but it was reported that the murder charge would be dropped after the teacher claimed the genitals were from a cadaver. And when the sexual molestation charge went to trial, it resulted in a hung jury. The prosecutor did not go forward with a second trial, noting that the evidence of the penis in the jar and other evidence was not allowed at trial. One report indicated that autopsy photographs were shared with a California pathologist who determined that the genitals were not that of either Wayne Reifendeifer or our other victim, Marty Shook. Investigators continue the search for Wayne's killer, but with no new leads, the case goes cold. And now this brings us to our second case, the murder of Marty Shook. Like Wayne Reifendeifer, Shook was a regular hitchhiker, described as a free spirit. Sergeant Park said that Shook worked in Colorado for a few summers with his Uncle Calvin. In June of 1982, Marty took off with Uncle Calvin and Calvin's girlfriend Betty for some fishing and camping around Truckee, California. Here's Sergeant Todd Park. Wait, Betty and Marty get into an argument over some food. And I guess they were living in a, in a camper, not one that you pull, but one that you have on the bed of your truck. So you can imagine how small that is. And the three of them were living in that little camper. So Marty and, and Betty get into an argument. Marty's like, screw this. I'm heading back to Colorado. And he asked Calvin to give him a ride from Truckee down to Sparks which is just a short distance. And he says, I'm going to go to Colorado. And uh, Marty had a whole bunch of friends in Colorado. So he gives him a ride down to Sparks. And we're assuming that he gets a ride from there with a truck driver. I don't think it's a stretch to think that, but I don't like to put all my eggs in one basket. But anyway, he gets a ride. Now, there's not much on Interstate 80 
between Sparks, Nevada, and Salt Lake. Uh, there's a, there's a couple of small towns, and if they stopped in one of those small towns, he could have gotten rides from several different truckers during that drive from Sparks to Salt Lake City. Outside of Salt Lake City, you take Interstate 80 up Parties Canyon to Park City, which is probably about 25, 30 minute drive. Once you hit Park City, you can either continue into Wyoming on Interstate 80, but if you're in a truck and you're going to Colorado, you would cut off and go through um, Heber City and up over Daniel Summit, and then you'll come into the uh, kind of the northwest corner of Colorado. And you can take Highway 40 all the way over to all the way over to Steamboat Springs. And it, it's kind of around that area that Marty would do work. So we know that on June 12, 1982, Marty Shook hitchhiked out of Sparks, Nevada toward Colorado. And it's 47 hours from the time that Uncle Calvin drops Marty off before Marty's mutilated body is found near Highway 40, about 20 miles south of I-80 in Utah. But at this point, the body is a John Doe. Again, here's Todd Park. His body is just off of Highway 40, which is a major, major highway. It's a two-lane highway, but it's it's a well-traveled road. He is carried, I'm, I want to say like 40-some feet over to some scrub oak, and his body is put into the scrub oak, and he's basically in the same position that Wayne Reifendeifer was found. The only difference is Marty has two white socks on his feet. Other than that, no penis, no scrotum, no clothing, no backpacks, no nothing is found at the scene. So it's identical to Reifendeifer's. It wasn't unusual for Marty to be offline and out of contact with his mother, so she doesn't immediately report him missing. Todd Park explains. And so he would be off the grid, you know, from time to time. And so his mother did not report him as a missing person for about two or three months. And the only reason she did it then is because he would always call her on his birthday and he didn't call her that year. So she started making some phone calls around to the people that he knew in Colorado. She talked to her brother. Nobody had seen him, and so she makes the missing persons report in Truckee. So, again, that's several months after he was actually found. Because of the missing person report filed by Marty Shook's mother, the investigation of the John Doe resulted in the identification of Marty Shook through fingerprints several months after his body was found. And as we mentioned earlier, both cases are entered into VICAP the FBI database where police agencies share victim and offender profiles, including patterns, motives, and evidence to identify both suspects and victims. Again, here's Sergeant Todd Park. A few years later, when both cases get put into VICAP, that's how they start connecting them, and then they uh, ultimately connect the two through ballistics that both projectiles were fired from the same weapon. I don't have a lot more information on Marty. I, I don't. I think the connection is Interstate 80. Uh, Interstate 80 goes very close to Lock Haven, uh, and it's, it's very close to Heber City. A neighborhood canvas is one of the tactics used by investigators to seek out information. 
police go door to door looking for possible witnesses, even to the smallest observation. Because Wayne and Marty weren't living at a particular address or location, there was not a traditional neighborhood to canvas, and the locations where the remains were found were secluded and remote. The delay in Marty's identification and the transient lifestyle of both men make the investigations more difficult. There are a number of theories that have been offered up in these cases, some from police, some from the media, and from other sources. One, that the killer may be an unknown truck driver because of the Interstate 80 connection. Wayne Reifendiefer's last known location is in proximity to Interstate 80 in Pennsylvania, as Marty Shook's location is in proximity to Interstate 80 in Utah. And there's the theory that the killer is the man claiming to be a truck driver who called state police anonymously back in August 1981, a position subscribed to by Sergeant Todd Park. Taking all of this into consideration, I, I truly think that that's our killer. And I think he lives in Williamsport, or he did. Sergeant Park told me that when you connect the dots, the same handgun used to kill both hitchhikers, and the anonymous caller claiming to have Wayne Reifendiefer's personal items, the man he believes killed Wayne Reifendiefer, that this would also be the killer of Marty Shook. Another theory that the murders were the work of a serial killer. A serial killer by general definitions associated with at least three murders. Corporal Kramer believes that to be a possibility. I can't imagine somebody raising to that level of violence and, and not killing prior and not killing after. And there's also the possibility that the killer could have been at the party where Wayne Reifendiefer was seen just days before his death. The killer may have kept mementos or trophies from his victims, a behavior that's exhibited by some sexually violent killers in order to relive their crime for sexual gratification. This killer may still have the genitalia from his victims, their clothing, backpacks, or bedrolls, and in Wayne's case, a ring that he was known to wear with a very distinctive design. Police are not releasing a description of that ring at this time. Both of these cases remain open. Authorities are hopeful that someone will recognize the killer from his behavior, location, and M.O., keeping in mind that friends or witnesses who would have been the same age as Marty Shook and Wayne Reifendiefer would be in their 60s and 70s today. Maybe there's somebody out there that had a, a neighbor that um, had something that looked like a pickle in a jar. Some, somebody that had a, a couple of ratty-tatty backpacks in their garage and, you know, one of them was green in color and, and the guy was just a little off. Or, But if there's a neighbor of somebody that, you know, that has Uncle Pervy that lives down the street and they, they just think, man, maybe, maybe he could be the one. It's been over 40 years since his senseless murder but Wayne Reifendiefer's sister will never forget her brother and the carefree memories they shared as kids. And she's haunted by the trauma of his death. Looking back on my childhood, any fond memories I have include Wayne and the things we shared together for those 11 short years. When I got the news that he had been murdered in 1981, it shook me to my core. As the details came out about what had happened, it affected me in many ways. Whenever my son or daughter mentioned hitchhiking, I would shake from head to toe. I'm still not able to go into the woods in the area where we live because my mind goes instantly to what happened to my brother and the things that were done to him. Did he suffer? Did he die instantly? 
The fact that the individual that did these things to Wayne is still out in the world terrifies and angers me beyond words. We weren't able to locate any relatives of Marty Shook for this episode, but we don't want to forget him, and we're sure that his family would also want closure and justice for Marty. If you think you might have some information that can assist in the investigations of the murders of either Wayne Reifendeifer or Marty Shook, call Lieutenant Shane Fredrickson with the Wasatch County Sheriff's Office in Utah at 435-654-3545 or Pennsylvania State Police Investigators at 570-726-6000. Those phone numbers, along with other details, can be found in our show notes. Thanks for listening to APB Cold Case. Tell us about your cold case at apbcoldcase at spawngroup.com. APB Cold Case is an original Spawn Group production.